Sarah Bonnell is a state-run school for girls just two miles north of the conference centre where this year's annual meeting of the ISMRM is held. With thousands of scientists coming to London to share ideas, we invited nine students in to quiz some of our scientists on what they do, why they do it, and why meeting with colleagues from all over the world is so important to their work. First up, Regard, Leila and Zarifa interview Pete from Imperial College in London. Firstly, what do you like the most about working in the MRI field? The thing that I really love about what I do is that I can talk to people who are much smarter than me, who have ideas, and we can talk about shared interests, and someone can say something that sets a light bulb going in my head about how we could come up with a new technique, or we could try to solve a problem in a different way. Or by talking to people, they have a completely different idea of how you can solve a problem that I would never have thought about in, in a million years. And even though I'm not a doctor, I can help try and come up with techniques that can maybe help spot diseases earlier, help measure treatments a little bit earlier or better. And I really love the work that I do because I, I just find it really fun. Um, I think the last time we met you, you mentioned a conference between all MRI researchers. Has that happened yet? No, so... All researchers from all over the world will come over to just near here at the Excel Centre and we'll have, people, we'll have thousands of people here who will be talking about the research that they've been doing. And you get to meet these people that you might have only met over Zoom or might have only read about from the work that they've done. And you get to talk to them about their work and it's more of this chatting about ideas and, and having fun thinking about science and, and how we can solve these problems. And it's a really exciting experience to, to meet all these people and to talk to them about their work. So everybody's super excited about that. What recent research have you done that you think that's very helpful? So at the moment, I'm working on techniques particularly aimed at Parkinson's disease and trying to find out ways that we can measure the disease in the very earliest stages. And the way that I'm trying to do that at the moment is a technique that we call super resolution. So we take low resolution images and we try and find a way that we can, after acquiring those low resolution images, increase the resolution afterwards. Um, like you said, you look for you know, early recognition for diseases like Parkinson's disease in MRI. So what exactly are you looking for um, when you do the actual MRI and the imaging? What would you sort of look for in the picture? Particularly in Parkinson's disease, what happens is there's a specific region in the brain called the substantia nigra. So if you think of the brain as a giant sphere, the substantia nigra is right at the centre of that sphere. And what happens at the start of Parkinson's disease is that iron builds up in the nerve cells there. And so MRI is actually one of the best tools that we could use to measure those early changes because it's sensitive to those changes in iron in the neurons. So there's lots of people just like me who are trying to come up with ways of using MRI to measure that early iron deposition at the, at the centre of the brain of, of Parkinson's patients. Could you explain to us about T2 values and how they relate to MRI imaging? Oh, that's a, that's a great question as well. So T2 is a, is a fundamental property of any tissue in the body when it's in a magnetic field. So different types of brain tissues will have different T2 values, which describes how they're reacting in that magnetic field. And actually, that's one source of information. So not only do different tissues have different T2 values, but if someone has a disease, like in Parkinson's, the substantia nigra, as the iron builds up, the T2 value changes. So you could design some kind of clinical study where you have a group of people who we call control subjects, they're healthy volunteers. 
and you have a group who have some kind of uh, disease and you can measure differences in the T2 values in a specific region to test how much their diseases develop. It's a physics quantity that comes from how they react in the magnetic field, but it's actually got tons of potential value as a, as a diagnosis tool as well. Going back to Parkinson's disease with iron accumulation, um, could a person feel the iron accumulation? Like, what would be the first symptom? The silver bullet of, of um, solving Parkinson's would be to be able to identify it really early. And one of the big problems at the moment is that by the time that people recognise that they might have Parkinson's, they've already had the disease for quite a long time. So they would come to the GP and notice that they have some problems with movement. They might have a slight tremor or they might be less stable when they're walking around. And that, that's a big problem to solve because you can't feel that it's happened. So maybe one way that MRI could help is that if those people had an MRI scan before they felt those, those symptoms coming on, they might be at a high risk of developing Parkinson's. They might have an MRI scan and, and it's spotted that they have something that's, that's starting to, to cause problems without having symptoms. That would be ideal so that then you could try treatments earlier on and hopefully prevent that as much as possible. So have you ever had like, have you ever done an MRI scan where something may have gone like really wrong? As a scientist, you get very used to things going wrong from a, from a scientific point of view. You might have a great idea that when you actually try it out, doesn't work. That's a really important part of, of doing science. You know, we don't know all the answers beforehand. And it can be frustrating at the time, but you learn from it. So there's been tons of, tons of occasions where I've wanted to, to get something working and it just doesn't work. But the other side, you know, if you're thinking about things going wrong, the point that we see most patients in the hospital is where something has gone wrong. And um, really what we aim to do in MRI research is to solve those problems. As a researcher, it can be hard to digest and then move on and then think, okay, I need to come up with a new idea. But the bigger picture, what we'd like to do is solve the problems for, for people where it has gone quite wrong and maybe we can offer a better opportunity for the future for them. In regards to the future, do you think that um, the research that you do now will have a potential impact for you know, saving people or reducing the damage that people have? So we're in a really lucky position as scientists because we come up with ideas and we all hope that the ideas that we're working on are going to make a big impact on different health conditions. So in my case, I'm really interested in neurodegeneration, so things like Parkinson's disease. And I feel really lucky that every morning I get to wake up and think, oh, hopefully what I'm working on could potentially make a difference. And that's part of the reason why I really love my job is that everybody around me that I work with every day is just as passionate as I am about whatever they're working on. And when you get something like the conference that's coming up now, you get people from all over the world who are just as passionate about solving these kinds of problems. So it's a, a really exciting job to have. One of the other really exciting things is that we always get new people coming through. So the next generation of young scientists like yourselves will undoubtedly make an impact if you decide to, to pursue medical research. And it just keeps going. So what you might have predicted for medical science 20 years ago, what you might predict for today might be completely different. And in the same way, when you are all scientists, I am really excited to see what you bring to the, the world of medical research.
That's great to hear because, you know, I also think it's very good to work collaboratively and learn from everyone else's ideas. And also, like you said, to have that drive to, you know, when you wake up in the morning, that you like you enjoy the field that you're working in, knowing that you're helping people every day. I think that's very valuable. Thank you for sharing your experience. It was great to go and see everything and from to learn from you now. It was great. It's been really great fun to have you visit. It's been a great experience for us and hopefully you've taken something away from it too. Pete, finishing that interview by Ragard, Leila and Zarifa. Next, Shaima and Imani visited Johnny and Kiara at King's College London. They wanted to find out more about the way we use MRI to look at how the brain develops and ages. So the other day, me and Damani were both watching Grizz and Lamy. They go into the MRI room, someone had like something wrong with their head, I don't know. And I was just like, that seems so accurate. This is so going to help us in our interview tomorrow. But then Amani was just like... Um, I was um, confused because I was told so many times that it's not actually accurate. Um, so I really wanted to know, what's your point of view on it? I guess my question would be, what were they getting the scan for? I think someone had been in a car accident and like they were wearing radiation vests or something. Um, yeah, it was quite confusing. I, mean, I think it was a brain scan, actually. Okay, so an MRI probably isn't super accurate, but compared to all the other imaging techniques we have, it is very good at picking up tissue damage or uh, tissue anatomy. And so if someone has a head injury, they might go in to get a brain scan just to see if there are any bleeds or there's any obvious damage that's happened to the brain. But it would really only be if they're showing signs that they need the brain scan. So do you think the film um, industry accurately represent MRI scanners? Because I was told there was random equipment everywhere. Well, for one thing, I guess the television show you saw had a radiation vest, whereas you, you don't need any. There's no radiation used in MRI. Another thing you often see is someone's inside in the scanner with nothing around their head and they're chatting away very casually. MRI, as you saw, I think I was in the scanner while you were there, is very motion sensitive. So even a, a couple of millimetres motion means that the scan may not be of high enough quality. And also you have the head coil that's around. So you might have seen it looks like a little cage over your head and that's never on TV. So in that sense, it's very inaccurate. So I'm never going to see Grey's Anatomy the same again. You know, thank you for ruining that for me. Anyway, um, what about fetuses? Because personally, the, one of the reasons I'm interested in things to do with medicine in hospitals is because I've been thinking about being a midwife or an OB or something. Um, and I was just wondering, how do you scan the brains of fetuses? Well, you put the mum in and you use, I guess, um, techniques that are targeted to imaging a fetus. The head coil you see on, on an adult going into the scanner or a child going into the scanner isn't there anymore. So you put a, a kind of a flexible coil over the mother and also the way they acquire the images is slightly different. So while I was in there, a single scan might take seven or eight minutes. But uh, on a fetus, they collect lots and lots of scans that each take a couple of hundred milliseconds at the most. And they put them together at the end using software. So you'll have, because the, the fetus is floating almost freely as it's inside the mother, um, they're moving all the way through and you've no control over that. So instead, you collect loads and loads and loads and loads of images and you use software to put them together at the end. 
After the baby is born, the brain, um, I was told that it develops once a baby is born. Um, so how long does the like brain develop? Like to what age? You get the brain developing until you're in adulthood. But I guess when you are, when you are a kid, that's when you see the biggest changes. And um, in the first three or four years of life, uh, that's when you see the biggest impact on development. So the brain starts at birth at about 20% of the size as it will be in an adult. And there's a kind of a limitation on the size of your brain. So in the first two years, it quadruples in size. So the brain gets much, much, much bigger. But a lot of it is actually to do with the wiring. So if you think of a connection between a computer and a plug socket, uh, the wire isn't bare. So it's covered by insulation. So a lot of the scanning we do looks at a thing called myelin which insulates the connections between neurons. But actually, that takes up huge amounts of space. There isn't that much when you're born, uh, so a child can't do much coordinated activity. In theory, our brains are developing up until, you know, 24 or 25, and that's now seen as the top end of what an adolescence is. But uh, actually, so it seems like the brain is shrinking after that age, and it does. It gets smaller and smaller. In, to a small degree, but some of that can be seen as um, increasing efficiency. So you have established things you do every day, and some of those connections that you have between neurons probably aren't relevant anymore, and maybe never were, so they get cropped back, and that's called pruning. That happens all the way through development, and in, in older adulthood, uh, we see it as a positive thing. So you just talked about how um, the connections between neurons and how like day-to-day -day tasks that you do, you kind of remember them. Uh, what about old people? Because a lot of them end up getting Alzheimer's or um, dementia. And so what happens to their brain then? What happens to those connections? In some of these diseases, like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or... Huntington's disease, you have um, some pathological processes that uh, affect the myelin, which is the kind of uh, fatty tissue that surrounds axons, so your main connections, and therefore the signals that normally are transmitted across axons uh, cannot be transmitted as efficiently. So when you're aging, the biggest effect you see is usually um, on the white matter and the gray matter. So the gray matter tends to shrink and the connections between the, gray, between the different gray matter areas, which, is, which are made by the white matter, tend to be uh, affected. So you can see, you can use specific techniques to, for example, look at myelin and how this deteriorates over time. Um, so a few days ago, I actually went to see an MRI scanner and it was quite huge. Um, so I wanted to know, with um, people with um, autism or maybe mental health um, disorders or maybe even claustrophobia, how do you um, deal with them? And if they really need an MRI scan, what do you do? I think an important part of the process is to prepare them very well. So... For example, if you have a, a very young kid or a kid with autism or a kid that is just very afraid of going into the MRI, you have to be very careful and take them through the process very slowly. So what we do, we show them a video when they're at home with their parents to just introduce them to how the experience is going to be. Then uh, when they come in, we talk them through the process, we show them the scanner, and we also sometimes we show them 
the scanner at work with maybe a teddy bear inside or we scan a, a melon or whatever and we show that the basically the noises that the scanner makes um, are not dangerous and we show more or less what to expect. COVID has affected a lot of workspaces. Um, I really want to know, how did it affect your research, like, personally? Because we're in a hospital, as you might imagine, the hospital was kind of one of the first to shut down all extra activities, and any research would have been one of the first. But because they're so good at infection control, uh, everyone who's working within the constraints of the hospital, they had lots and lots of training and... For instance, you get a mask as you walk in, things like that. It meant we were able to start up a little sooner than some other research centres. So we were lucky in that sense. By being in a hospital, um, it, we were in a better position to start back up. I don't think I was badly affected as much as other people. I think the pandemic was quite okay, both because of the project I'm working on and also because it gave me the chance to focus a little bit more on my research. Are there any ethical issues with MRI scanners? The first thing that comes to mind is if um, when I scan my patients, I might see something that I'm, I don't expect to see um, and have an incidental finding, it's called. And I guess it's very hard after the scan to look into this kid's face and not say, anything. I'm not allowed to tell them that something was wrong. I have to wait for the uh, proper procedures and for medical doctors to review the scan and to get back in touch with the family. What made you passionate about MRIs? One of the things that's really unique about seeing the brain in someone who's alive is you can look at two different types of things. So you can look at how someone responds or how their brain responds to speaking, for instance, or hearing words, and you can make out the area of the brain that's associated with listening. But you can also, just by looking at anatomy, you can see some of these circuits. So uh, you're kind of looking at the end point of millions of years of evolution, and you can see circuits kind of coming from the inside out, and you can visually see them, and I find that incredible. And some of these circuits are the ones that are targeted for uh, treatments for things like Parkinson's. And because you can visually see them, a surgeon can visually see them, and they can put in an electrode, for instance, that helps with symptoms. I just find it fascinating. I've learned so much, thank you. Yeah, same here. Thank you so much. I'm probably definitely going to go to a good sixth form now. So, yeah, thanks a ton. I'm glad you can go to a good sixth form. <laughs> uh, no, this has been incredibly interesting. Yeah, I agree, and I think that your questions make us also reflect on ourselves and our experiences, so thank you very much. Kiara, ending that interview by Shaima and Imani. Finally, Sophia, Mirab and Maisha went to UCL and interrogated Sharon and Tom about the ups and the downs of being a scientist. Here's Sophia. Okay, so we've done some research about UCL and something that really stuck out to us is that it's world-leading. It's a world-leading university and labs. So we wanted to ask, what exactly makes you world-leading? From my perspective, I'm a clinician as well as a scientist. So there's a hospital attached to the centre we work in called the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. And it's one of the most famous neurology hospitals in the world. Lots of diseases being characterised there and lots of very 
famous neurologists and neurosurgeons have come through there. So that gives you a really important foundation for the patient base. So then I then do my research in patients with a very particular brain condition um, that affects their memory. And at UCL in the Imaging Centre, so the Wellcome Centre, it's really benefited from having some very famous psychologists and neuroscientists go through there, but particularly for the work that we do, people who um, have created the software that helps us analyse MRI scans and functional MRI scans, which uh, you saw a little bit of. That software is used all throughout the world by, mo by most people who do research in our area, so it's great to be at the cutting edge of creating that new technology. I'm guessing you do get generously funded for your research, which led us to wonder, do you think it's ethically reasonable to use large sums of money for your research purely because of curiosity when you know there won't be a sure outcome? I think the first thing is that when you do science, you never know what would come out of it, really. And I think uh, it's therefore sometimes very difficult to judge uh, how the money will benefit society in a way. I do think as a scientist that curiosity is important and that there is reason to do research which is not necessarily clinically applicable. As I said, both because we don't know where it will take us, but just for the sake of knowledge and for the sake of you know, human society. So we know it must be a stressful job, especially with a large funding, a lot of pressure. So what drives you to really get up in the morning and do what you do? Throughout my uh, studies and throughout my research, I've been working with patients and always trying to communicate back my research findings to um, both patients and maybe as importantly, um, their carers. And people find it usually very interesting um, and also helpful. So I think this um, feeling that, that you are contributing to patients' uh, management and rehabilitation has been a big drive for me on top of the curiosity and fascination with, with language and with the brain. Pretty similar with me. So even the patients I um, mainly do my research on, you know, when I first started doing my research, no one thought they had any memory problems. It turns out they got really bad memory problems. So having discovered that and characterized that for them was really cool. And it was a really important part of the research. And, you know, I still get emails of thanks from them and stuff saying, you know, thanks for helping us out with this because my family didn't believe us. Um, you guys have already touched upon what you guys do, but is there, have you always been doing working in language and working with the brain or have you changed your path? So I've been uh, working in the area of uh, neuroscience since, I guess, my master's degree. And I've been interested in languages since my undergrad. When I came to uh, England to do my master's degree, I, to begin with, really struggled with the English and this feeling that something so basic like language and communication is such a struggle really pushed me to be interested in people with language disorders. So I have been in that area. I worked with children with developmental language disorders and children who had cardiac problems and as a result had brain damage that affected language and memory. Um, and as I said, also with adults with a stroke. So well, I'm a doctor and so I started off medical school. I thought I was going to end up being an orthopedic surgeon. When we were doing our neuroscience in my early years of medical school, I got really into the brain. I thought this is incredible. So then I did a, a degree halfway through my medicine and I was able to work with one of the world's f most famous memory researchers, which was just incredible. And I got to do a little bit more stuff with him during my time at medical school and I knew that I wanted to do the brain. I just didn't know what that meant. But then I had to work for four years just as a junior doctor. Um, which meant I didn't have any time to do anything else, to be honest. And then eventually um, was able to kind of specialize into doing um, to doing stuff with the brain. So I, and I and did my PhD and things and then 
ended up get training as a neurologist, then finally became a consultant a couple of years ago. So it did change a little bit about what I'd, I thought I'd still want to be a surgeon, but I realized I found it really boring surgery. So I thought I didn't want to do that anymore. And I actually enjoyed the medicine more. So I think that um, I was kind of always interested in memory, but my the stuff I've been interested in memory has definitely changed as time's gone on and stuff. So yeah, I think you start off with a plan and it just changes as the opportunities come past. So do you think that you've ultimately pursued where you'd want to be as like your career or do you think that you still have a long way to go? Definitely a long way to go because what's exciting about science as we've sort of touched upon, the stuff that I'm doing now, I'm pretty sure I won't be doing, you know, hopefully 10, 15, 20 years down the line because the questions will change. We'll have different answers and we'll know different things and then different technologies will come along. And um, so I don't know if I'll necessarily, I, I hope to still be doing memory because I think it's a interesting part of of neuroscience but whether it's doing the questions I'm doing at the moment I don't know. I think that there is a lot of change as you go even when you start a small project you kind of never know where it's going to take you. If I look back at the last 10 years there have been massive change in the techniques we've been using in the analysis that we've been using and in kind of the fundamental questions that have been asked so I think a lot of times something kind of pops up and then it becomes really popular and everyone starts thinking about it and looking at it. Um, maybe one example which wasn't quite there when I started my undergrad is the use of big data, which now is is really the, the thing or one of the big things in definitely in neuroscience. Um, and it hasn't been there. So when I would read papers as an undergrad, you know, a paper with 30 participants would be a massive data set, you know, and today it almost looks ridiculous. You know, we have hundreds and thousands of participants in studies um, and we can ask such different questions. So it's really interesting and it's something that you can't foresee. As you previously said, COVID has impacted a lot of scientists across the world. And because you both work in different fields, has it affected you differently or in the same way? So it affected me because I was in the hospital. I didn't, couldn't do any research at all. So, um, yeah, we, I was just sort of helping look after neurology patients and some COVID patients and things. So um, no research for me. We were in the group in the middle of a few studies when lockdown started. And because we work with adult stroke patients who are uh, vulnerable adults, obviously the research had to stop. And actually still two years in, hasn't been resumed in large. It's obviously hasn't been reasonable and feasible to bring vulnerable adults into central London in the last couple of years. So that affected things massively, but it also pushed me and everyone I've been working with to go back to studies that we've done before that were kind of neglected, um, that we thought maybe there is nothing really there, um, trying to put data sets together with other labs who didn't manage to finish their research, but actually together we have enough data. It did spark, I think, some creativity because we had to start thinking of the way we work very differently. Um, so we've collected that communication and collaboration is key in the research you do and that's led us to wonder whether maybe any data you've shared or published has been used in another scientist's work and just generally about the tension between scientists trying to break through on the same things. There is one thing I've done during my uh, PhD, I was working with stroke patients with language disorders um, and I was curious to see whether some of these patients who struggle to speak have preserved inner speech. So whether they can 
um, hear their voice in their head, whether they can retrieve words that they can't say out loud, but they um, can retrieve them and hear them internally. Um, and we developed kind of a test battery that will check whether patients have inner speech. And we published this battery in a, in a kind of a small journal that publishes that type of material. And throughout the years, I had a lot of people who emailed me and asked for the test and used it and then published it with other populations. So I think that has been really nice that it was a really simple piece of work, just something that was really fun to do, but informative and has been used by other people. As you know, there are many different factors that can affect the quality of research, such as like money and communication. So what do you think is the most important factor? I think actually experimental design. Um, so how you design your experiment to answer the questions. So the most important thing is so you formulate your question. What is it you want to ask? And you have your hypotheses, you know, what is it that you're testing and testing against? Um, and then how you design the experiment to answer that question. So with that functional MRI research, fMRI research, what you want to, you know, you, you kind of, the changes in blood flow that happen in the brain when you're doing an act, you know, doing any task, me talking to you now, is probably only changed by one or two, maybe three, 4%, the activity of the speech areas of my brain. That's tiny. And you got to think about how to collect that tiny amount of difference in a small number of people, you know, a few number of people over for a particular task. So it's often about, you know, how do you make sure that you collect the data so that when you put it through the best, you know, the best analysis software packages there are, that you're actually going to find what it is you're looking for. So yeah, I think actually experimental design really is kind of the key thing. Do you enjoy your job overall? Like, do you see that it really makes an impact in people's lives? And to me, the answer is yes, I think it is because, you know, the populations I work with and will work with in the future, you know, they need answers, they need the right questions being answered in them. Um, I really love what I do. You know, it means that every few years I have to worry about funding, which is stressful in and of itself. But I think that's worth it. Yeah, I'll join that. I do. I, I love doing science. Um, I really enjoy being a scientist. I'm happy that this is where kind of life took me. I think that there are a lot of difficulties. It, it's not an easy career in many ways. But I think if I remind myself why I'm doing it, then yeah, it's definitely worth it. And I enjoy it. Sharon, ending that interview. It was great to meet the scientists of the future and find out about their perspective on our research. Thanks to them, and thank you for listening. The interviewers were Imani Chowdhury, Shaima Rizali, Mirab Anjum Mir, Regard Abdin, Leila Abed, Maisha Vora, Taia Patel, Sarifa Mir, and Sophia Mechua. They interviewed Pete Lally, Johnny O'Murahurti, Chiara Casella, Sharon Giver, and Thomas Miller. With production help from Hannah Smith, Salma Adele, Ray Potter, and produced by Karine Pikama. I'm Stuart Clare. Thanks for listening.